journey. And if you've got, if you got the text message, it asks you to remember to bring your journey book with you today. If you forgot, there are extra copies, or if you don't have one, there are extra copies available out on the table in the lobby. Uh, you could grab one of those. We are not going to go through everything that's in this. I'm not going to insult your intelligence. I think that you're able to read just fine. And so, but there is a section at the end of every part that has a place for you to take notes. And I'd encourage you to maybe jot down some notes that come from this sermon or maybe come from the reading, questions that you have, or things that the Holy Spirit shows you as you go through there. Um, I promise you this, you retain at least 40% more just by actually engaging your, your brain to write as I talk to you or as you read. So as you read, if you underline things or you mark things in a book, you will retain much more than if you just listen or you just read along. And so the reason that we, we purchased those books, made them available to you, is that hopefully you'll be able to retain more of what we share in this room with you and uh, also that you're going to be able to get more out of what you're reading in the, the books themselves. And so I'd encourage you, to use that and utilize that as we go today. And so as we've gone through the, the book so far, uh, we've talked about what it is to have a relationship with God, um, how our relationship with Him is all about relationships. We talked about those three tables, the table of intimacy, which represents our relationship with God, the table of communion, which represents our relationship with other believers in the body of Christ, and the table of connection, which represents our relationship with people in the world or people outside the body of Christ, and how we need to learn how to actually sit or live at those tables, live in constant communication with God. We were not designed to have a devotion time. Let me say that again. We were not designed to have a devotion time. We're not supposed to have a quiet time with the Lord and then just go about our day. We were designed to walk in communion with Him. Now, a devotion time is good because it's a time where you set apart and you focus your attention directly on the Lord, but that devotion time should be carried throughout your entire day. You should be in constant communication with God through the Spirit all day long. It shouldn't just be my, my devotion time and then my life. I mean, it's the same thing with tithing. There are people that are like, I believe in tithing. I give 10% of my income. Tithing is a place to start, but the tithe isn't the Lord's. Everything I have is the Lord's. All of it. And so it's not about just giving 10%. It's about when the Lord comes along and says, hey, I think we can do 15%. I think we can do 20%. I think you could give 10% to tithe and 10% to missions. Well, well, Lord, I might not be able to have all the cable channels I want to have. I might not be able to have unlimited internet on my, my $500 cell phone, Lord. Oh, but I'm, I'm tithing. And for some reason, sometimes we get locked in on one or two verses in the Bible, and we're like, yeah, I'm obeying that verse. But that verse, out of the context of the whole Scripture, might not be what God intended. And so you can be tithing, but not really pleasing the Lord because the other 90% is all yours and not His. Does that make sense? Are you out there today? Did that not make sense? Okay, made sense? Okay, good, it made sense. Thank you. So as we talk today about part five, the scriptures and how important the scriptures are, we're going to talk a little bit about... Um, why that matters, why we can't just take one verse, lift it off the page, put it on a plaque, and put it in our living room, and just be like, yes, that's my life verse. Uh, you can do that as long as that life verse fits in the rest of the storyline of the entire Bible. And this is something that we've been talking about all through 2023. This is not, it should not be a new topic for you. But when we come to the, this idea of Scripture and what it is, a lot of times we talk about Scripture being God's love letter to us. It's God's love letter to us. I'm not going to say that's not true, but we have to be careful that we don't sensationalize the Scripture in a way that makes it more about us than it is about Him. God is the central figure of the Scripture, not us. Now, he, yeah, He loves us, absolutely. God is love. But when we start saying, oh, God's given me these love verses, not all of those verses apply to us today. 
in the way that they applied to ancient Israel. We can't just lift it off the page and assume it's going to apply to us in the same way that it applied to them. If we understand how it applied to them, then we know how to apply it to our lives today. I mean, the Bible is not a personal book for us. It's a corporate book for all mankind. And if we lift things off of it and treat it like it's a personal letter to you and I, sometimes we're going to lead ourselves astray into something that God's not necessarily saying. And we want to be careful. Some, we think of it as a divine book. We know it's a divine book. It's God's word. It's inspired. And what does that really mean? For some of us, we get this idea that maybe the Bible dropped out of heaven like this, with lights and power and angels. And I don't know if you've ever studied how we've collected these books, uh, but there's a process where, where scholars throughout the years have, have tried to authen, authen, authenticate, thank you, whether or not this was the real author, whether or not this is the real message, and they've, they've put this book together the best they know how into what we call the canon of Scripture. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But I'm not trying to say it's not the inspired Word of God. It's, it is the Word of God. It has authority. And I think when we understand how the book was collected, who wrote it, the literary style of who wrote it, what the author was trying to convey when he wrote it, when we understand that, it actually strengthens the authority of it. I think when we treat it like a magic book, like this, I don't think that gives it the, the, the actual authenticity that, uh, that it actually has. And I think the world looks at that, and they don't believe that. But if we would treat it as it is, and we would talk about it as it is, I think it would strengthen what people understand about the Word of God. One scripture that I want to share with you on this point, 2 Peter chapter 1, Above all, you must understand no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The origination of the message is God, absolutely clear. But God spoke through people. People wrote it. So the same way that prophets today speak, I'm not saying that it's on the same authority as this book, but that's how it works. So the people that wrote this book are not infallible people. The message that they convey is infallible. But you and I have to understand what's in the author's mind as he's writing a book and make sure that we keep that in context. That's what we've been talking about all through 2023 so far. And so that should not be a new concept to you. So what is this book we call the Bible? The book, the journey book that you have, Lots of things, it'll give you definitions for words like inspired and infallible and inerrant. It'll give you some tools on how to study the Bible, how to apply the Bible. It goes through what the inductive Bible study method is, how to ask questions of the Bible. So I'm not going to take time to talk about that. But I want you to understand that the, the Bible itself is a collection of, of verses that we have put together. Okay, There were not chapter titles, there were not... Uh, chapter breaks, there were not verses. We put those in to make it easier for us to talk about and understand, but these things were written on a scroll all the way through, okay? Each individual book. First and Second Samuel are not two books. They were one book, Samuel, written out. We, they were written on two separate scrolls just due to their length, so we call them First and Second Samuel. So in the Bible, in our Bible, we have 33 thousand verses okay think about that 33,000 verses but there are 64,000 cross references what why does that matter that means the bible is always pointing back to itself many times the new testament jesus the new testament authors are pointing back to stuff in the old testament and if you and I don't understand what, I mean, we tend to read through the Bible and most of us don't ever pay attention to a footnote. 
And if we would pay attention to the footnotes and just start going back, reading what it's, what it's referring to, or going up and reading what it's pointing to, we would make a whole lot more sense of the storyline of the Bible, and we would be able to value it a whole lot more. Most of us just don't have, we don't make the time to really get into the Word and actually study the Word. A couple of the tools that we gave you this year, we talked about the BibleProject.com. So many resources available to help us understand the Bible better. BamaDiscipleship.com. So many resources on those websites to help us understand the Scripture a whole lot better. Because even though the Scripture itself is infallible, our interpretation of it is not. Listen to that again. Even though the Scripture is infallible, our interpretation of it is not. So that is why we continue to read and study and learn and grow and check other footnotes. And we don't just read our favorite books. We read all the books. We study the background of the books. The more we learn, the more we understand what God has been doing from the beginning of time. God has not altered his plan at all. It's been the same from beginning to end. The New Testament that we have is made up of 27 books. So this is probably not new information to, for you, but the, the four Gospels about the life of Jesus, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have the book of Acts, which is the history of the church. Then we have all of these other letters that have been written. We have other letters that were written by, we think, the Apostle Thomas, but we're not sure. It doesn't really coincide with some of the other letters. It seems to contradict a lot of what is said. So it's not in our Bible. And so from time to time, you may have people that say, well, what about the letter of this letter? Or what about this? letter or what about that one there are reasons that some of those books weren't included in the bible some of those reasons i agree with personally some of those reasons i don't agree with personally but guess what i'm not the final authority so this is the book we have and it can be trusted because these books have been validated and these books make fit in the the entire narrative that god has been writing from beginning to end then we have what we call our old testament <clears throat> now, there's a great push in our day to get rid of the Old Testament. We don't need the Old Testament. We don't understand. We just need the New Testament. But I will tell you, you cannot understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. This idea that all we have to do is have Jesus, I want to tell you, Jesus had the Old Testament, and Jesus, almost everything he ever did or said, points back to the Old Testament. The miracles that Jesus performed were not just, you know, random, well, maybe this blind guy, I'll put mud on his eyes. Maybe this, this blind person, I'll just spit in his eyes. Everything Jesus did points back to something else. Jesus is always trying to make a biblical point with everything he sa says and everything he does. And so, all of it can be traced back. And the more you, you start studying those things and you start finding those things, the more understanding you get of how all of the Scripture works together. So our Old Testament is these first five books. We call them books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. <clears throat> then we have the history books where we start in the book of Joshua. We go all the way down through the book of Esther. Then we have what we call the wisdom books. Then we have the prophets. And we have major prophets and we have minor prophets. And that doesn't mean that their message was, was minor. It just means that their book is smaller. So that's how we break up the, the books of, excuse me, of our Old Testament. However, the Hebrew scriptures are broken up a little bit different. Excuse me. The Hebrew scriptures are actually called the Tanakh. The Tanakh. <clears throat> so the Tanakh actually stands for Torah, Nevaim, and Ketuvim. Those are the three words that make up this idea of the Hebrew scriptures. This would have been the Bible that Jesus would have referred to. This was his scriptures. And the Torah is not law. The Torah actually means teaching or instruction. So the Torah is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Nevaim is the word prophets. That's all that Hebrew word means. And if you notice, it starts in the early prophets of Joshua and Judges. And you're like, huh? Prophets? Yeah, prophets. The, there's no such thing as history for the, the Jewish people. Everything is prophecy. It's the Word of God. It's the, the living message of God, if you will. 
And so all of that would be prophet all the way down through the minor prophets. Then they have the ketuvim, the writings. Now, some scholars feel like Jesus had these. Some scholars feel like this was still being compiled. We know that they had the book of Daniel because Jesus refers to Daniel in his uh, his teachings. And so the writings for the Hebrew is going to be Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Song of Solomon. But then it's going to be Ruth and Lamentations. And it's going to be Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And the Hebrew scriptures end with the book of Chronicles. Interestingly, our Bible ends with the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is the last verse of Malachi. It says, see, if you want to throw that scripture up there, there you go. See, I will send the prophet Elijah, and he will be a, there will be a great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. For some reason, when we compiled the Old Testament, we put this promise of destruction, if you will, this warning at the end of the scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures that Jesus would have had as a child or would have studied ends with the book of Chronicles. The book of Chronicles is an interesting book because it, it was written during the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonian captivity, the Jews have a chance to look back on their history. They get a chance to look back on all of the events that have transpired, and they begin to write it a little bit differently. The books of Samuel and Kings were written in real time. Those were written as those events happened. But with the hindsight available to them through the prophets, through the the exile to Babylon... Ezra, we believe, who wrote Chronicles, begins to write the story of Israel through a different lens, if you will. That's why sometimes Chronicles has a little bit different message than the rest of the the Samuel and the Kings version, because it's written through a different mindset or a different lens. So this book ends with this verse, 2 Chronicles 36, 23. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. It ends with a promise. Now, The way the Hebrew scriptures are put together tell a way different story than the way our Old Testament is put together. And so I'd recommend you can dig further into this on blueletterbible.com, Baby and Discipleship, Bible Project, and you can understand why they call these things prophets, what that points to, why these are writings, and what that points to, and you can understand a little bit differently because we have to understand the Scripture. We have to understand the Bible. We have to understand the Word of God from the lens of the kingdom of God. And I believe as we start to study the whole book, the narrative of the the storyline of the Bible, maybe you're tired of me talking about this, but I think this is going to change everything for us in the Western world when we begin to understand the kingdom of God that, that runs through the entire narrative of the Bible. I believe we have to know Scripture. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, warns us that if we do not know, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you as my priests. The nation of priests that they were called to be. Because you've ignored the law, terrible translation, because you've ignored the Torah, the teaching of your God, I will ignore your children. You've got to understand the word Torah is translated all the time in our English Bible as law. All of the Torah is not law. It's instruction. It's teaching. It's guidance. Some of it is law. Some of it is not. And so understanding that, I think, helps us understand some of what Jesus was teaching and how we apply it to our lives. So when we come to this idea of the kingdom of God, what I want to talk about over the next few minutes is just this idea of not of this world. Not of this world. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying that um, the people of God, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. You ever heard that? We're in the world, we're not of the world. Do you you ever wonder, I mean, do you know where that comes from? It comes from verses like what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. So Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, and this is what he prays. Verse 14, in the middle of his prayer, 
He says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. That word sanctified just means to be set apart, totally unique, totally different. So when Jesus says he sanctifies himself, he's kind of referring to his death. He's referring to what he's about to do on their behalf, on our behalf. He's going to set himself apart. He's going to sanctify himself so that we too may be truly sanctified, set apart, and then sent out into the world just like he was sent. In John chapter 18, one chapter later, verse 36, Jesus is standing before Pilate and he says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to protect my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. So this, it's this phrase, not of this world. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about not of this world, but oftentimes what comes to mind is, well, Jesus must be talking about his kingdom is spiritual and not physical. I won't disagree that there's a spiritual element to Jesus' kingdom, but there is nothing in the Old Testament that talks about the coming kingdom of God in a spiritual sense. It's a physical kingdom. It has physical attributes. It affects people physically. When Jesus came preaching and teaching that the kingdom of God came near, what did he do? He healed people. Physical. He called people to feed the poor. Physical. There's a physical aspect to the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world, he's not just implying that his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom only. And what's happened in our world today is we, we're, we're starting to take it that way. And so we say things like, oh, well, we don't want to get caught up in like social issues because we want to just preach the gospel. And the gospel, by gospel, what people mean is the personal salvation that comes to you through Jesus so that you can die and go to heaven. That's not the gospel Jesus preached. That's a part of the gospel Jesus preached. But the gospel of the kingdom not only affected spiritual, it affected physical. You don't have to pick and choose whether to be spiritual or physical when it comes to the message of the kingdom. You do both. There are commands throughout the scripture, throughout the life of Jesus, that call us to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, to love our neighbor. And all of those point to the fact that what the early church did when Jesus left was take care of orphans. They would go out to the trash heaps where people would put their babies because they didn't want them, and they would bring those babies into their home. And look, the first adoptive foster care program was started by the early church. Throughout the history of the church, the church has started hospitals and orphanages and schools and soup kitchens and all kinds of things to address the social needs of people throughout history. Martin Luther King came on the scene to address some of the needs that our country needed to face when it dealt with people of color. Whether you like to admit it or not, our country has a terrible history towards the treatment of the African American. And when Martin Luther King was standing up and proclaiming that God's word calls the church to take action, most of the white evangelical church was telling him to tone it down. It wasn't until after his death that we really started to celebrate him. So if we don't understand history, this wasn't a long time ago. This was 30 or 40 years ago. Christian organizations as, as late as 1980 we're still not allowing students to come to their school if they were in an interracial marriage. Because they said the Bible forbid it, forbids it. You can't marry someone from a different race. It's forbidden in the scripture. And they fought the IRS to try to be able to, to say, if you're interracially married, you can't come to our school. And the IRS wanted to take their tax-exempt status. 
This is the history of the church. Now, it's just, it's, it's what it is. Nobody expects us to be perfect. But it does expect us to admit our mistakes. And the church throughout history has a huge history of helping in these ways. There's always been a remnant. The church has never been totally lost or totally terrible. There's always been a remnant of people that have been standing on the side of truth. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, again, don't conform to the pattern of this world. I don't know how you read that statement of what the pattern of this world is, but many times we read it as a morality statement. We don't want to get caught up in the culture. We don't want to engage in some of the things that culture's doing. And we talk about like abortion and sexual issues. And we talk about um, some of the, the, the immoral and greedy things that are happening. But it's not just a morality statement. It's a system statement. It's, even when we treat it as a morality statement, we usually treat it as a selective morality statement. We don't actually talk about all the moral issues that are out there. We just talk about the big ones or the ones that we don't have a problem following. But what, what Paul is trying to get us to understand is there's a system in this world that follows a certain pattern. You want to resist that that system and that pattern the same way you resist the moral issues. The, the, the Israelites made this same mistake before they went into captivity. The prophets come along and the prophets start telling them the way you're mistreating the poor, the way you're mistreating the foreigner, the way you're mistreating your workers. In fact, if you read through all of the prophets, you will find that the, the sin that is more condemned than any other sin is not idolatry. It's the treatment of other people. It's social issues. It's because it's woven into the fabric of God's kingdom. How you treat other people. Does that mean that idolatry doesn't matter? No, it matters. Does that mean moral issues don't matter? No, they matter. It's just we cannot lose how we treat other people in the midst of all of this. The overarching story of the Bible, I believe, is a tale of two kingdoms. The, the kingdoms of this world that we can refer to as world or empire and the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of shalom or peace is referred to a lot of times. And so these are some of the, the differences between these two kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world, all of them, use the stick. They use the staff. They, they threaten. Okay, if you, And the Bible says that's what they're supposed to do. If you do wrong, they punish you. That's a kingdom of the world. That's how we keep people in line. We use the stick. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but when Moses threw down his staff and it became a snake, and the other Egyptians threw down their staff and it became a snake, if you've ever read it closely, Moses' snake did not eat the other snakes. Moses' staff ate the other staffs. Why would it say that? Did that really happen? That his staff ate it? Or are we making a point that the whole system of Egypt is what's wrong? And God has power over all the kingdoms of this world. You will find stuff like that all through the scripture if you slow down. And you'll ask yourself, why did the stick eat the stick instead of the snake? That's a great question. Dig into that one. Kingdoms of this world use force and fear and coercion. They're all about comfort and leisure and luxury and self-preservation. Now, it's not that all of that stuff is bad, but the kingdom of God is, in, is totally opposite of the kingdoms of this world. All of them. The kingdom of God is led by voice, not by stick. Why was it important when God said, speak to the rock and Moses struck it? Because the kingdom of God is not about striking. It's about your voice. It's about 
appealing. It's about invitation. It's about trust. It's about peace. It's about mercy, compassion, justice. It's about self-sacrifice. Why, why am I telling you all of this? Because we can follow Christ morally and yet live more according to the systems of empire and be outside the kingdom of God. When we live for luxury and leisure and comfort and self-preservation, more than we live for mercy and compassion and justice and self-sacrifice, when what we do as a church is more about what we want and what we need and our comfort and our leisure more than it is about what we need to do to get others into the kingdom, to begin to serve them right where they are, then we're following empire more than we're following kingdom of God. That's the narrative. This is all through the scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image. God says we are made as humans in his image to rule over the, the earth. We were supposed to rule according to the kingdom of Shalom. How many of you know Adam and Eve didn't choose that? The fruit looked good to them. It, it's going to make them wise. So they chose the kingdom of self-preservation, their own wisdom, and they plunged all of us into this battle of kingdom of this world, kingdom of empire, kingdom of God, kingdom of shalom. We come to Genesis chapter 12. And God finds someone that he's going to work through to reestablish his kingdom on the earth. And it's a man by the name of Abraham. And Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. Not you will curse. I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And God begins to teach Abraham to live according to his kingdom, not according to the kingdoms of this world. Does Abraham do it perfectly? No. Like verses later, he's making mistakes. Abraham was not the perfect example, but God works with him, and Abraham is repentant. He keeps coming back. And then eventually, God works with all of Abraham's descendants. He brings them out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 19, he brings them to Mount Sinai. And he says to them, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God wanted them to be his representatives, a kingdom of priests, representing him, image bearers. Can I tell you, God did not give them the Ten Commandments in the next chapter, or the Torah, the law that he passed down through Moses. He did not give them that to teach them how to be made right with him. They were made right with him by faith. He gave them the law to teach them how to live as the people of God. The blood of the Passover lamb, their obedience to that command to come out of Egypt and come to him. I have brought you to myself. That's a picture of salvation. The law was never given so that we could be made right with God. No one is ever justified by the law. The law was given to teach us how to live as the people of God. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and it credited to him as righteousness. Not Abraham obeyed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed. It's always been belief. Somehow we've taught people that in the Old Testament it was about keeping the law to show us we could never keep the law to be made right with God. It was never, being made right with God was never about keeping the law. In fact, in the law itself, there were sacrifices for when we screwed up. When you make a mistake, here's what you offer. There's a blood sacrifice for you because you are made right with God by faith, not by keeping the law. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, the righteous person will live by faith. Hebrews chapter 11. Look at just a small portion of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel brought a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. By what? By faith. Not by obedience. 
when God spoke well of his offerings. By faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life. He did not experience death. He could not be found because, no, because God had taken him away. He was taken, he was commanded as one who pleased God. How did he please God? I don't know. But verse 6 goes on to say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So it was his faith. Anyone who comes to him must believe he exists. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Righteousness has always come by faith. Old Testament, New Testament, it's been the same story. This is the purpose of the Torah. So the people of God were given the Torah so that they would live as a kingdom of priests, so that they would be a light to the Gentiles, so that they would bring people in. It wasn't about living perfectly because when they failed, they were supposed to repent. They were supposed to bring sacrifices. And so they were offering these laws. But the problem is they began misinterpreting the Torah. There was a difference between sin and ritual purity. You've got to understand, when, when we talk about ritual purity, when you come in contact with a dead body, that wasn't a sin. It just made you ritually impure. And before you went into the temple where God's presence dwelt, you had to get death off of you. It was the same thing with the, the woman's menstrual cycle. <coughs> it, <coughs> most scholars believe, because of the, the flow of blood that represented the death of that potential life, that was the reason you had to go through a purification process before you went into the temple. So there were things given to try to make sure that you were ritually pure before you went into the temple. Well, here's the thing. If I start hanging out with sinners and I start hanging out with Gentiles, I'm going to have to do some sacrifices to get pure before I go in the temple. So it became easier to draw lines. It became easier to say, I'm not even going to go into a Gentile's house. Because if I go into their house, there's a chance I'm going to get contaminated. Then I'm going to have, it's going to cost me something to get purified so I can go back into the temple. It was not a sin to enter the house of a Gentile. It was not a sin to eat with tax collectors and sinners. And yet when Jesus steps on the scene, they don't understand why he's risking impurity. Because that's the point. We're priests. And in the same way today, the church can be just as guilty as drawing these lines to make, make things about us, make it more comfortable for us. We can live according to the kingdom of empire because we, we're keeping the moral scripture, because we're pulling out a couple verses and we're posting them on our walls and we're, we're shouting from our moral mountaintop down at the people that aren't living right rather than being down with those people and walking among them and we're not drawing lines about who's in and who's out we're trying to bring the kingdom that was good stuff in revelation chapter 12 verse 11 they talk about the kingdoms of this earth all of the kingdoms of this world are empowered by by dark forces can i tell you even the united states of america is empowered by spiritual forces we're not a perfect country, and we never have been. I'm grateful that our founders used the Bible to, put, to weed into some of our, or to, to weave into our constitution and our documents. But can I tell you, were we perfect as a country? No. Was there greed in the founding of our country? Yes. Was there immorality? Yes. Was there prejudice? Yes. So we're not perfect. So this idea that we've got to get back to some former perfected state never existed. Never existed. Don't fight to try to get back to something that didn't get exist, yet exist. Live within the kingdom of God in this nation that we live in and manifest the kingdom here. Work for the peace and prosperity of this city. Work for the peace and prosperity of this nation within the kingdom of God. And sometimes that means standing for moral issues. Absolutely. But it's not just about moral issues. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it tells us that when we live in a, a nation, any kingdom of this world that you want, 
that is empowered by spiritual forces, the way to victory is by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and the willingness to lay down our lives. That's how we win. The book of Daniel that was written during Babylonian exile, okay, it was, excuse me, it was written during Roman captivity about the Babylonian exile. If you, if you read the story of Daniel, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all of the things that they did, all of the influence that they had over that pagan nation, all of the victories that they gained, do you know how they gained them? Submissive subversion. Submissive subversion. And there's a message being proclaimed in the Western world today that's more like the zealots of Jesus' day. We want a Messiah that gives us the, the kingdom of the world that we want. Be careful. Jesus spent most of his ministry trying to get his disciples to understand his kingdom is not of this world. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus disarmed all the powers, all the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. How? By triumphing over them through the cross. Through the cross. His willingness to shed his blood became life for you and I. Can I tell you, you and I are, we have the same calling. To be willing to shed our blood on behalf of someone else. Or at least be inconvenienced on behalf of someone else. That's the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 2. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Is this how we live? Oh, well, God doesn't expect us to live this way. He does if we want the kingdom of God to thrive. Can I tell you that some of the political division that's in our nation right now is because the church refuses to walk in the kingdom of God way, but they choose the kingdom of empire and slap a moral tag on it. Amen, Pastor Tom. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. My point today is as you start reading the scripture, as you continue to study it, I hope that you start to understand more fully the theme, the, the narrative that runs all through the scripture. Don't just pull out a piece here and a piece there and apply it to your life so that you can live according to the kingdom of empire, just a little bit more moral than those people. So that you actually live according to the kingdom of God. One of the ways that we can do that, and I'm going to close with this, is we need to learn to think like a missionary. We need to learn to think like a missionary. When a missionary goes into another country, they know it's not their country. It's not their own. And so they don't go in preaching the gospel. You know what they do? They go in serving the people that are there. They go in getting to know their neighbors. They go in trying to, to love them and value them serve them, whatever needs they have. They build hospitals. They build orphanages. They serve that community. And through that, they demonstrate the love of Christ and they share the gospel of the kingdom. Why in the Western world do we do it different? Why do we think that because I'm an American and that lost person's an American, I should start preaching first? You won't find that here you'll find serve first. You'll find lay down your life first. And if you preach first, you better be willing to serve and lay down your life second. I feel like we've gotten the cart before the horse in the Western world. I want to be a church that does it different. We want to be a church that works for the peace and prosperity of our city, that serves, not just for the sake of serving, but so that the powers and principalities that are at work in our community can be disarmed because we believe that Jesus said it's better to overcome evil by doing good than try to overcome evil with other evil. Bless those who curse you, not curse louder those who curse you. 
That's disarming those powers and principalities so when we do share the gospel, it's able to be received. Be willing to stand next to your neighbor and serve them so that their hearts are opened to share the gospel. That's the message of this book. And so, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the story that you have had in your mind from beginning to end. Holy Spirit, forgive us for ways that we've missed this. Ways that as individuals or even as a corporate church where we've lived more for our own comfort, our own leisure, our own preferences, where we've lived for self-preservation more than we have for mercy, compassion, justice, self-sacrifice. Forgive us for trying to use the weapons of this world, the systems of this world, to accomplish kingdom, kingdom victories. Help us to be willing, God, to understand what you're doing in our world and to live according to the values of the kingdom in a greater way. Holy Spirit, as we read your word, help us to be able to slow down and recognize the things that, that seem different, that seem out of place the things that we need to question so that we understand what's actually being pointed out in that passage. Help us not to be content to just know a little bit about your word. Help us to be better students of your word. Help us to be diligent to study, to learn, to memorize, to meditate upon your word. So Holy Spirit, continue to work in our lives, individually, and as a church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I know that was a very teachy <laughs> message. They always are. I hope it made sense. I hope you made the connection. If you ever have questions about what I've shared, what I've talked about, you want to learn more, please pick up the phone. Give me a call. Set a time when we can get together and walk, walk through some of that more. I don't know that I have all the answers. You might be able to push back on something I've said today, and I might be like, I think you're more right than I am. I don't know. Marv likes to push back, but he does it in such a good way. <laughs> and so I want to encourage you, use the Connect card, or you can just call, text, email directly. We can set up a time to go through that. If there's any other questions you have, I'll be available after service. If you didn't get prayed for today and you would love someone to pray with you before you leave, prayer team will be available after the service as well today. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for giving your attention. And thanks for worshiping the Lord with us. God bless you as you go.
Mountains move. 